Hello, hello. Welcome back, friends, to the Contemplative Motherhood Podcast. I feel like this is kind of becoming our signature <laughs> intro. Yeah. Hi, I am your co-host, Erin Thomas, here with my dearest friend and co-host, Chelsea Whipple. Hi, friend. Hello. How are you? Well, I have to say today, spring has finally sprung at our house, and although our weather is still up and down, but I... <laughs> I have to mention, to keep with how our almas would say it, today was a good day. It was filled That's with fun, good. laughter, yeah, peace. Good, good. I'm living in the present moment right now. I feel like I can't really contribute to that conversation because living in coastal Georgia, it's pretty much 75 degrees a large percentage of the time. So I'm going to be <laughs> very happy for you about that. Yes, yes, I take my 75 when I can get it in the spring. That's right. We are so happy, listeners, that you are here today and present with us. Mm -hmm. We know that you could be listening to literally, I think, everyone in their brother's podcast, as I say, um, <laughs> because everyone has one at this point, but we are thankful that you're here in this space with us. So to recap a bit for listeners who may be joining us for the first time, hello, hello. Um, our current season is highlighting stories of the Amas. And that's kind of a complex definition, but a simple way to say it is that means we are hearing modern and historical stories of mothers in a spiritual or a physical sense, um, those who have been, who have had children or who have been life-giving and sustaining life, as Chelsea has shared with us in a prior episode. So um, these stories are reflective of those contemplative mothers. Chelsea, my friend, our oh. resident history buff, has been sharing with us our past few episodes on some of the Amas who have more of a historical background. And this has been fascinating. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the prior episodes of some of the other Amas, I encourage you to do so as you can. Um, and today we're covering an even more intriguing Ama. I think this may, I say this every time though, I think yeah. this might be my favorite Ama, but I think this is just maybe because um, you have a gift, my friend. So my history buff, who do we have today? Well, we are here today to talk about our next Ama. So Ama Rabia El Adawiya, and we're just going to call her Ama Rabia today. And she comes from the Sufi mystical tradition of Islam. And in fact, some credit her with establishing the language of Sufism by referring to God as the beloved and just to breathe in her words, we today will refer to that ultimate one, that divine as beloved. And I want to specifically talk about her today because she touches this mystical union with the beloved. And so this is the first time we are introducing the word mystical, mystic, yes. mysticism. Those <laughs> Don't freak out. <laughs> yes, those three words. And if that word kind of jumps out at you, don't worry. We are planning on having a whole episode just on this word alone. Yes. So for now, just think of the word mystical as something more, something beyond which we cannot explain. 
Yes. Okay. Okay. Wow. So this is, this is a lot. I have so many questions, obviously, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners do. And so we'll be able to cover primarily where our focus today is um, on the AMA, but later we will address some of those touchstone words, as we call them, taboo, hot spots. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> um, but as a person of a my personal Christian faith tradition, a lot of these words are not in my vocabulary, right? We all have different language for the way that we describe our experiences. So Chelsea, can you set us up a bit and how we look through this lens together, despite our very backgrounds? And really, how can we be stewards of this story and the culture within context. Um, and if you don't mind, while you're at mm-hmm. it, could you give us a bit of a beginning on some of the early parts of Amarabia's story? Yeah, so I, w- I will try as much as I possibly can to do that. Um, but, you know, before we dive too deep, I, I, ha- I feel like I have to give a disclaimer. So I am not of the Sufi tradition. So how I look at Rabia and soak in her life and teachings will be different than someone who has a better understanding of the culture and tradition more. So I ask patience of you if this is you and would love, oh my goodness, love to hear more from those who have a different and more rich experience of Rabia, who's been able to take that time to really study her. Yes. In um, second, let's kind of give a brief bio so we can understand the time period and community that she lived in. So Rabia lived in the 8th and 9th century in Persia. So specifically modern day Iraq. She's also considered a Rabia of Basriya. And her family was very poor. And soon after her parents died when she was young. A great famine struck the land, so she became a penniless orphan and was then sold into slavery. So I have to interject here because if you haven't listened to our prior episodes, again, this is just sort of a theme I feel like we're seeing, another hard to begin, another hard beginning, excuse me, and we see the suffering beginning with her. So Tell us more about this story, my friend. Yeah. So this is kind of where her mystical experiences began or, you know, what um, her biographers have talked about. And she would have these lengthy conversations with the beloved. And we don't know how old she is at this point or if she's been instructed in her religious tradition. You know, as a young woman from a poor family... I'm assuming that she's probably illiterate and did not have any formal religious education. So the story after she sold into slavery goes that her master saw her praying one night and light illuminated all around her and lit the whole entire house. And as he's gazing on her, decides that she has got to be some sort of saint or an angel and he has to free her. So at this point, after she's freed, she then goes to the desert in order to dedicate her life to her beloved, to dedicate her life to prayer. 
and she remained there and lived a fairly secluded life. Okay, that's that's just incredible. Um, that freedom um, mm-hmm. that was given to her. And I want to say this is really interesting because we see this as sort of reminiscent of other stories and other faith traditions, right? Like an experience with the beloved, which then transforms completely how an ama moves forward in her life. So I want to say specifically, Chelsea, why do you think that Ama Rabia is considered a woman of I guess, influence, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us why she has earned the title that we've given her, (laughs) Ahama Rabia, the contemplative beloved? Yes, yeah. So, I mean, if you're thinking 8th and ninth century, a woman, so she's a very important figure because of her genuine ability to live counterculturally to her day and really an inspiration for our day as well. And she embodied that principle of Sufism, which is to worship God out of love rather than... <laughs> I'm going to cut this out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I coughed so bad. I was trying so hard to get through that. Okay, hold on. Do you want me to repeat this is interesting? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Look. Okay. Wait, wait, so, wait. Just give me a second. Yeah, Pull it all out real quick. <laughs> I don't even know what's like tickling. <laughs> You're in a closet, so that could be it. Okay, hold on. <coughs> I'm getting there. Like, maybe I inhaled the thing of dust. I mean, a gnat? Do you want to start over? I mean, I don't care. <coughs> no, I can cut this. It's really easy. I just have to remember to cut it. Don't cough long up. Need it. <coughs> okay, hold on. Let me get my voice back. <coughs> okay i'm ready okay okay start over this is interesting okay so this is interesting and our i kind of want to point out we see that this is really reminiscent of other faith traditions right an experience with god which then completely transforms how an ama moves forward in her life so charles why really is Amarabia considered a woman of influence? And can you tell us a little bit about how she earned our title that we've given her, Amarabia, the contemplative beloved? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she is a very important figure for women because of her genuine ability to live counterculturally to her day and really an inspiration for our day as well. I mean, again, we're talking about 8th and ninth century. No matter what part of the world you're living in, these aren't times where women is, you know, we have writings from different religious traditions of women. 
but they're so few and far between. They're not given great importance as the men. She's very, very revered in her tradition. And so she really embodies this principle of Sufism, which is to worship God out of love rather than from fear or hope. And she had this way of knowing the embodiment of the beloved was as much a part of her as anyone else. And her prayers that we have dictate that the beloved was not a matter of believing, but a matter of knowing. So this is really interesting. And I know I'm probably, listen, I know I'm probably going to say that about 25 times. This is interesting. (laughs) This is interesting. It really is. Um, More because for various reasons, but I know we have some reflections of other writings and other religions that maybe some of us may be more familiar with, right? And so she's known for her writings, correct? Like, was this very much a part of her contemplative being? Yeah, so what's interesting is when you explore other traditions, idea of contemplation, uh, way of knowing, mysticism, enlightenment. Again, these are lots of new words, you know, that we're kind of surrounding ourselves with right now. And that's really all to say that a lot of spiritual traditions, religious traditions, kind of that ultimate reality for these traditions and, and for our own tradition is To understand this, our life's work, our life's journey is a way of being instead of a way of just believing. Hmm. So for her specifically, she has this way that we're going to explore of living life, not in a manner of complete, or I'm sorry, in a manner of complete unity with the beloved. And that's all she wanted. That's all she talks about. That's all that she desires. This is, so so I have to say, so I'm not super familiar with Sufism, but generally these concepts are pretty contemplative in nature. Uh, How can we explore her a bit from this like historical narrative arc and apply some of that within our own culture and tradition. So how does this apply to us in in some sense? We've touched a bit on, in prior episodes, the Eastern way of life and the ebbs and flows, specifically the differences in Western culture and Eastern culture. And this is a continual theme in Amal Rabia's story. Um, so my historical friend, can you break down this Eastern Western sort of way of life for us a bit? Um, and just help us out. (laughs) Yeah. And I love talking about this and I have no idea if I'm getting this right, but it's how I understand it. So, you know, one thing to know is Amma Rabia is from the Eastern way of life. So she has this Eastern viewpoint. And if you've listened to both of our episodes on Ama Aya, you know, you kind of heard us bring up this point about East versus West. You know, what does that really mean? And if this is something you have not known before, definitely encourage you to kind of look at more Eastern versus Western thought 
and specifically when it comes to religions. And you can kind of formulate how you yourself understand this. So we're going to hear a lot about how I kind of understand this and hopefully, you know, this kind of grasps on for other people. So because of globalization in our modern world, you know, we're starting to see how even one religious tradition can have different ways of thinking based on the culture and the worldview that you currently live in. Yes. Okay. So I really, I, I, I really want to touch on this and just emphasize that that's so good, my friend. Um, it's how often, and I know this is can be really stretching. It can be challenging for, um, for a lot of us, and because what some of us don't. I mean, for myself, I can only speak through my personal experience, but you know, so much of our background and our philosophies and um, the way we live our lives affect the lens in which we view the world. I mean, just everything. It's like, I want to make an inappropriate joke about beer goggles, but I won't because (laughs) I'm a mature adult. Okay. Um, But that was kind of the example that was going through my head. But so here we've got this lens, right? And that really affects every way that we view our philosophies, our thinking, our religious traditions, our mm-hmm. um, gracious. I mean, we could go on for hours. Mm-hmm. So if can you break this down a little bit for us based on your personal experience? Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the best way I understand this. If you've ever taken a philosophy class, most of what you're going to get is kind of a Western philosophy lens. So for me, as a Christian from the Western world, my view is very much reminiscent of Roman and Greek philosophies that taught about individualism. So, you know, thanks, Plato. (laughs) And but for Christians in the East and more from kind of the Eastern Orthodox, have a completely different philosophy. And here's the best way for me to describe East versus West. So West, we tend to be more individualistic. East tends to be more communal. So they are, they have kind of a better idea of a whole, like of a whole being, of a whole community, that you're not just a yourself you know, that you're part of groups. Right. And, um, you know, so when reading Amas from this part of the world, from the Eastern part of the world, and we even said with Ama Aya, it's like taking how you think in a Western idea and flipping it on its head and just thinking a completely different way. And so it's important, again, to note that these amas from the East teach from this communal point of worldview, as opposed to kind of a more individual worldview. And this will come up again when we have an episode or two, who knows, about the amas uh, from the Christian world who fled to the desert. So we call them kind of our desert or the desert Christian amas. They're also coming from this Eastern thought. And so Amarabia is very similar to them. And you'll kind of notice those similarities when we talk about them. Yes. And I think we're going to we're gonna break this down more as we go throughout this, these stories. But 
the main point that I love that you've articulated is just that um, this different philosophy of the Eastern versus the West and how we are very much ingrained in an individualistic mindset. Um, so got that filed away for the future. <laughs> and I'm really certain that we can provide some quality literature on this if you're interested, listeners. Um, so we will do our best to try and give you some of that, perhaps maybe in a future blog post or in our show notes. But let's hear a little bit more about Ama Rabia's story. Yes. So, and hopefully I've not lost anybody yet. So, and if so, <laughs> bear with me because I'll try to kind of repeat this more and more, you know, to bring us to remind us of this communal worldview. And it's also, we have to note that Ama Rabia was an ascetic, not aesthetic, ascetic. <laughs> we had a 20 minute conversation about this. <laughs> we did. Those are two different words and they mean two different things. And even the word aesthetic now can kind of mean something a little bit different than it would have in those days. Right. So she lived apart from others most of the time, like I had said earlier. And just to kind of define what I mean. So in ancient terms, you would use the word ascetic to mean someone who, and it really means to exercise. So think of your modern day athlete who is an Olympic athlete, they spend the majority of their time exercising, uh, getting their body in shape, getting their mind right, um, doing their particular, um, you know, I almost call it a ritual right. in terms yeah. of their sport. And this is kind of what a person who um, considered themselves ascetic would also do. So we kind of think of it as like, oh, no, someone who lived to the extreme, you know, self-discipline, um, usually choosing a hard life with a strict diet, you know, denial of pleasure, etc. And maybe that's how she practiced her life. But really think of it as she was an athlete training to live in unity with God. Hmm. And she had disciples and they were both male and female, which is important to note for her time to have male disciples. Yeah. Um, she had friends. She called them friends. But, you know, her base was more seclusion, and she just desired to be surrounded by the beloved. She didn't want anybody to kind of uh, break that unity with her and the beloved. Wow. So in some of the literature we're given, you know, her biographer gives us this image. And it's this image of a fire where love and longings are the flames, you know, so much that her as the fire, we'd get lost in union with the divine. Okay. So I have to stop you there because uh, when I first read, when you wrote this and I first was looking at it, I thought those are incredibly powerful terms to be used mm -hmm. in sort of a spiritual context, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. can you dive deeper a little bit into that and break that down for us? Yeah. Yeah. So she, you know, used these words to kind of signify the depth of relationship one can have with the sacred. So first was union with the beloved. And she taught her followers that one knows the beloved when you turn into yourself. Mm -hmm. So when we turn inward, we are at the point where we meet the beloved, where we meet the divine. Mama? 
and I have this lovely child who is now, mm-hmm. you know, we're meeting the the beloved together. You are. Yeah. So I want to share um, a little bit of her. Chelsea has Mama. Mama. given us a couple of Mama. quotes. So I want to share those with you guys. Um, one of the quotes is, God is God. She said, for this, I love God, not because of any gifts, but for itself. And so I've just been blown away by her poetry in general and her poems that are attributed to her talk about this union is just beautiful. Um, One of her writings goes on to say, Oh Lord, if I worship you because of fear of hell, then burn me in hell. If I worship you because I desire paradise, then exclude me from paradise. But if I worship you for yourself alone, then deny me not your eternal beauty. Mm. Wow. Okay. So first of all, I'm nerding out as a writer. Um, (laughs) Can you sort of give us like a little bit of a thematic understanding of these, this poetry? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm going to say this, and I think this is probably a good point you know, to kind of um, stop us because we're going to do two parts to Amarabia because she's amazingly beautiful. So, yes. um, and so we can soak her in for a whole week. And I really think it's going to be worth it, you guys. I mean, we um, had thought about continuing on this episode, but there's so much rich content here, um, specifically when it comes to Rabia and her process um, of gratitude. And so we'll talk about that. But um, Charles, I'm just interested in this poetry. I mean, this poetry just keeps coming up. Yeah. Was this just kind of her way of expressing? Um, was this sort of a contemplative practice for her? Yeah. And, you know, because um, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, and again, she's credited with, with uh, the Sufi teachings. And so the Sufi teachings of wanting just pure union without the fear or hope. And this poem completely wraps it up. You know, she did not want to dwell on beauty, nature. Um, She didn't want to dwell on sadness. Hmm. She just wanted this pure movement with her beloved, not this emotionless movement. Right. Or to live in a world of black and white. She had no desires of anything that would kind of uh, distract her to dwell on maybe like a beauty of a flower, which can kind of bring you closer to the beloved. And it's kind of like, okay, this brought me closer to the beloved. So let me turn inwards and just dwell on the beloved and not dwell on the flower. So it was like anything that brought her closer to the beloved was, was kind of what her focus was. And she desired that it would not be her emotions that swung how she moved throughout the day but a greater awareness that of all that surrounds her. So let's dwell on that. I'm going to say it just one more time. Let's dwell on that for a bit for this week and kind of see how it moves you. And when we meet again, we'll rewind just a little bit to kind of pick up where we were. Um, But she desired that it would not be her emotions that swung how she moved throughout the day. You know, so we see that in motherhood. Yeah. Mornings can be terrible and we have to kind of reset our day. So to not be swung by the emotions. 
but a, but just having awareness that's surrounding you. You know, when the day, when the mornings aren't going so well, when you're late to everything, just having awareness of what's moving along inside of you and outside of you with you. And that's kind of where she was. That's what the point she wanted us to be at is to just notice and be present to what's around you, not how it affects you. You know, I'm really interested in this. Um, what seems like an internal pendulum um, Mm -hmm. friend. And I think there's a lot there. So giving that greater awareness for our challenge this week sounds like a really great option. (laughs) Yeah, And we have just touched her so far. So we have so much more we get to dive deeper into next time. Absolutely. So thanks for joining us. And we will be back with part two and telling you more about Ama Rabia. Thanks, friends.